Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Jill Farmer has been called a brilliant time optimizer and life maximizer. She's a former Emmy Award winning investigative TV reporter and anchor who now helps people get epic things accomplished in far less time. Jill Farmer is the author of There's Not Enough Time and Other Lives We Tell Ourselves, which debuted as a top 10 bestseller in the time management category on Amazon. Jill, hello and welcome to my show. Oh, it's so awesome to be here. You know, I've always been a fan and I think your uh, shows and podcasts are among my most uh, treasured possessions because I, I just find them so rich with information. So it's there's just no place I'd rather be than hanging out with you. Well, thank you. And I'm excited to talk about this because we all live busy, busy lives, right? I mean, and everybody has the same 24 hours. And um, and we have this belief that there's just not enough time. Yeah. I mean, it's how, it's really how I lived, I would say, most of my life from somewhere in my teenage years until really I was just about 40. I mean, it was, for me, it was always living under this, this story that I would somehow win this jackpot of more time in the future. This windfall would come show up. I don't know where, where I don't know, but it was when I had time, I was going to do this and be this. And then it never showed up. So then I spent the rest of my time sort of arguing against reality, ticked off that, that I never had time to do what I really wanted to do. And um, I love how you talk about that. Cause like you, in your book, you mentioned, oh, well, once I get through this, you know, once I get through high school, once I get through college, once I get that full-time job, once I get, it's always that once I get lie, then I'll have time, right? Yeah. But that's not the case. No, it's just a deflection from living life, I think. Um, And it's just this story that for me created one of two kind of action modes. I was either in hamster on the wheel, (laughs) moving for the sake of moving in a constant frenzy all the time mode um, where I just, you know, would step off at the end of the day and be like, what in the heck have I gotten done today? And really not having a clear idea of gotten anything accomplished yet. I was physically, emotionally, spiritually spent, drained, depleted, or I would feel so kind of overwhelmed and I was kind of just felt like I had this ten, proverbial 10 ton weight of overwhelm over my head, which would just kind of paralyze me from even knowing where to start. And so even though both of those action modes look really different, one is, you know, frenetic energy and moving for the sake of moving. And the other is sort of just immobile. <laughs> they both had the same result, which was not much was getting done or not much of meaning was getting done in my life. And so um, for me, for the longest time, it was all about believing the circumstances need to change. If this would just happen, or if I could just adjust this circumstance, then I'll have enough time. And it reminds me of kind of what you say um, 
what I've heard you say in the past about weight loss. A lot of times people think, when I lose the weight, then mm-hmm. I can feel whatever. <laughs> and that's kind of how I was operating in relation to time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always that that it's out there instead of, okay, what? And it's reactive, isn't it? The way yeah. this, there's not enough time, it's reactive. And then we, we spend all this time in these other areas that aren't in line with our values and our priorities. Isn't that right? No doubt. And, and, and as a matter of fact, um, you know, I'm not a brain scientist and I never played one on TV. So I don't <laughs> I want to bore too, you know, people with too much brain science. But it's just interesting to note that every time we tell ourselves a, any form of a lack-based thought, like there's not enough time, right? <laughs> I don't have enough time or I have too much to do, which is one of its sort of derivative thoughts. Every time we do that, we inadvertently trigger that fight-or-flight response in our brain, um, that, or what some scientists call amygdala hijack, which simply just means that we react without thinking. It's our body, our, our most primitive part of our survival system is trying to protect us and tell us that you know, it can help us fight or, or flee or freeze. Um, and so it, it, it gets triggered just by thinking the thought there's not enough time all we're really capable of doing in that auto response, auto reaction place is to react without thinking, to have the blood drain away from our brain into our large muscles <laughs> and to, you know, jump in to either action or freeze into immobility. And so um, by just becoming aware of that, we can do what I like to call, we can get out of the reactionary mode and into a space where we can respond because when we're responding we're making choices and we're using our whole brains and we're able to collaborate and we can problem solve instead of stalling on the problems. And it just really, um, it goes to what you've spoken about in the past with Carol Dweck, the growth Mm -hmm. mindset versus the fixed mindset. So it's just very interesting to note how telling ourselves that what we treat as fact, there's not enough time all the time, tends to put us in a brain state where we're pretty terrible at deciding, launching action, or discerning anything. And, and so the thing that comes to my mind is that there's always going to be, I remember when I was younger and I left youth coaching, youth swim coaching, and I thought, I'm going to have all this time. It's going to be great because all those hours that I was on the pool deck were going to be all of a sudden available. Well, I was very quickly able to fill that. And so it really is about, I think you said this earlier, about being deliberate. How do you want to choose the spend that your time and is it in line with what you're living? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. And the first place to start is just to note, begin to notice the signs of when you're, we have this, I think, cultural myth that somehow it's best to get up in a bunch and kind of in a frenzy mode so we can get more done. And the brain science tells us the opposite. That's where we make all the stupid mistakes, right? Like my cardiologist client who was all upset over a major grant that was gonna that was on the line for some research dollars and a project she was doing at the number one medical school in the country. And in that, I need more time, space, got up, head was, you know, her, the cacophony of all these not enough time thoughts banging around in her head, no surprise, caused a headache went in, took a couple of, you know, extra strength Tylenol and went to drive to work a short time later and realized she felt weird, 
goes back into the bathroom and realizes she'd taken two extra strength NyQuil, not two extra strength Tylenol or Advil, which is what she wanted to take. And those kinds of stories are, I hear from people all the time, all over the country when I speak on this subject. People tell me the stories of how just being in that fight or flight space or that frenzied not enough time space caused them to make really stupid decisions, which were the opposite of deliberate or intentional, and it ended up costing them, ironically, enormous amounts of time. So what can we tell ourselves instead of this lie that we've been telling ourselves? Well, the two easiest ways that I that we can kind of just circumvent, or I like to say just stop that vortex of the <laughs> not enough time vortex that that ends up sucking us down and eating up all our time and decision-making. And they're so simple that sometimes people think, well, can they really work? But they really do, and the brain science (laughs) proves it. Um, And one is to simply notice. I notice I'm having the there's not enough time thought again. And in the act of noticing, if I had your brain hooked up to some fancy functional MRI machine, likely instead of just having that amygdala or that center that, you know, can the most primitive part of your brain that can only really control that fight-or-flight response, instead of that, just in the act of noticing that you're having the thought, you know, light up all the other parts of your brain that help you be able to connect to solutions and to look at opportunities, to look at obstacles as opportunities instead of just lining up all the evidence of why things are never going to get better, which tends to just leave us stuck more overwhelmed, more exhausted, less motivated, and therefore feeling like time, again, is not on our side. So noticing is the most important step of all. And then the second one is to replace the thought there's not enough time, which triggers all of these you know, action-reaction cycle that takes us in the opposite direction we want to go, and replace it with a thought that is likely to serve us more, which is potentially there is enough time. Mm-hmm. So the noticing, I think, is an important thing, don't you? Because just even noticing that, then all of a sudden you you don't really go into that drama of, oh my God, there's not enough time, it's overwhelmed, and you're spinning, and you're eventually kind of having this um, thought spiral downward, and you're just collecting that evidence of, see, there's not enough time, look at all the stuff I have to do, right? And we get into this drama and perceptually blind. You got it. Bingo. Mm-hmm. You said it exactly right. That's that's it. It takes you. It just takes you from the most primitive part of your brain into, I think, a, fi- a higher functioning part of yourself, where you can utilize past knowledge, past experience, and intuition. Where again, you're taking more intentional react, intentional action, and responding versus just constantly like banging around like you're a uh, ball in a pinball machine, reacting to whichever way you're getting getting sent. And when we tell ourselves, like when we find that replacement thought of there's not enough time, I know for me sometimes because, you know, I can just very easily slip into there's not enough time. There's a lot on my plate. But in the end, I'm the one that choose that. So one of the things that I focus on is, Corinne, you want to create space, right? You want to create space. What? How can you create space? And that's what I've spent like probably the last 18 months of creating space so that I can process stuff. So I can do all those things that I keep adding to my list. Um or that I get to choose, right? This, I choose to live this kind of a life, which for me is a lot more empowering than there's not enough time and which can throw me into like a victim mentality. 
Yeah. And the thing, sometimes people will say, well, you say replace it with there is enough time, but Jill, I cannot believe that thought. <laughs> I've got the, and I've got the, you know, full iCal or my blackberries buzzing off the table and the stress and the overwhelm and the, and the, you know, and the migraine headaches to prove it. And, um, I had actually somebody who was very left brain scientist once when I was giving a speech, you know, basically stand up and say that. And at the time, the, it was sort of like I felt like I was being traumatically heckled, but it was one of the most, it, it was an awesome exchange because it helped me to, to speak to what I think a lot of people feel when they hear me just kind of casually say, just replace the thought with there is enough time. Because when you can't, you know, so I said to this person, um, and she said, what do I do if I can't believe that thought? Because it just absolutely can't be true. And I just simply said to her, how many hours are there in a day? And she said, 24. And then I said, is that amount fixed or variable? And of course, she was, you know, a brilliant scientist. So for those of you stumped by that, the answer is fixed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is. It's a fixed amount. And so I said, so if it's a fixed amount, if you're constantly saying there's not enough of it, Aren't you arguing with reality? And from a logical perspective, how much sense does it make to argue with reality? And if arguing with reality is, is launching um, this cycle of un unpleasant emotions, which make it more difficult for you to have um, action that takes you in the direction you want to go, is it possible you could consider a state of mind where you're more accepting of reality so that you are able to create for yourself a match between what you want your life to look like and then what it actually looks like. And, and she said, yeah. And then we played with some of those good old tactical, you know, tools, time management kind of tools. But I think if you're trying to take advantage of all these time management tools and programs and systems that are out there, many of which are terrific, but if you're taking advantage of them from that, there's not enough time space. Um, it's just like you're somebody who's going on diet after diet after diet, <laughs> but is trying to somehow lose weight from the place of feeling like you'll finally be worthy once you do it. And you know as well as I do that that's just not a very good foundation for making change. It's a little like trying to be a pole vaulter mm -hmm. off quicksand. It's not going to work very well. <laughs> so when you bring this conversation up to people or when you're speaking across the country, do people go, okay, lady, there's a we we live in the real world. There's real life. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do often, and they want to show me how they're the exception to the rule. And and that's and I just lovingly say I get it, I understand. But if continuing to do the same thing you've been doing harder isn't working for you, can you play with me a little bit and maybe try some of these mindset shifts and notice if something changes? And <laughs> and I often get emails from people that start out with, I thought, there's no way you were right. Or when I heard you, I thought, this is crazy. <laughs> but, but fortunately, almost always when they start out that way, I know that then we end up, sh they, they, the net, what comes next is, but then I tried it, if nothing else to prove you wrong. And then I realized, oh, it does feel totally different in this different mind space. And, I, and stuff isn't as, exhausting, hard, or as complicated as I was making it when I was in that fight-or-flight mode. And people tell me stories about being able to, you know, packing with barely any time left to catch a plane, and they and they're, can't think of anything, and they are totally out of their mind 
I'm sure they're going to miss their plane, pausing for just a second and saying, okay, Jill Farmer, I notice I'm having that there's not enough time thought again. There is enough time. And just in that microsecond of taking that breath, noticing suddenly priorities get a little clearer. Okay, here's what I need to pack. Here's how I need to get it together. Here's how I can make this happen. And, you know, doing things like making a flight that they never thought they were going to make in a million years. And that particular story, when somebody gave me that example, that person said they were telling a colleague about it. And the colleague said, so you're trying to tell me that this lady, whatever it is what she was telling you to say, helped you transcend the time and space continuum? (laughs) And she said, and the person said to me, Jill, I I didn't want to say yes, but in some ways I kind of felt like it did. And I said, great. I mean, I'm not saying we're entering into Star Trek land here, but I am saying it's amazing what our little old brains can do for us when we let her, let them operate at full function as opposed to in terrified mode. Mm-hmm. Well, and you did that. Like there was that woman who challenged you in your speech when you were speaking, right? And what you did is you stayed calm and then you asked her factual questions and that helped her stop spinning that story of there's not enough time, right? Yeah. And opened yeah. up her brain. Yeah. Inside, I wasn't necessarily feeling calm. <laughs> I was able to, to take a deep breath for a second there and say, huh, you know, how do I remember I feel when I'm in this space? Mm-hmm. And and what do you know most of the time works a lot better for you? And that's and that's what I just keep going back to um, over and over and over again. And and I don't, you know, people say, time management expert. And I kinda, it's kind of funny because I don't really think, honestly, that you can manage time. Mm-hmm. I really think it's more about learning to embrace time and how you are able to do so many bigger and more important and more um, impactful things in your life, things that can cultivate more meaning when, um, when you embrace time and look at the ways that you can launch decisions and actions and visions from embracing versus trying to manage it. So it seems like kind of a silly semantics shift, but it's I've seen it have a pretty big impact on people. You know, but I relate that like to the work I do with my clients with food, right? Because so often and when they're coming from the diet world, it's I've got to control food. It's my battle, right? And they're showing up and they're rooted in this sense of fear when it comes to food. And they get mad like, why is my body hungry? And I said, well, why is your body hungry? Well, it's hungry, but it shouldn't be. But your body's hungry. That's like arguing with your gas tank that you shouldn't have to go to the gas station. Right. Right. Like I used to do that all the time and I would run out of gas because I'm like, no, I don't have time to go to the gas station. I don't want to go. I should have more gas. Well, the fact of the matter was I was on empty. Right. Right. And and I would push it and I would run out of gas and my friends would look at me like, really, (laughs) really? I was like, I know, but I'm just so busy. It's like, okay, why not pay attention to what my car needs? Why not pay attention to what my body needs? Right. Why battle it and try to manage it? Why not? embrace it and go, okay, what do I choose? How can I be the leader of this? And that sounds like what you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's a perfect metaphor to connect it. And, And even to, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot with people is the idea that often they're so resistant to, but the fact that busyness is a choice. (laughs) (laughs) It is not a state of being inflicted upon us. Um, and, you know, I think, and people say, well, why do you think that is then? And I, I think two things. For a lot of people, busyness becomes our worth meter mm-hmm. 
busier I am, the more I'm worth. And unfortunately, that isn't necessarily isn't true. And so it ends up just sort of being like this, again, that, that, that kind of spurs that hamster wheel kind of motion for the sake of motion that doesn't end up giving us what we really need or want in our lives. And the other thing is just the, the whole idea that um, we, get, we can get almost addicted to busyness. And, and, we, and especially in our culture, I did a, a friend of mine and I were having this conversation when I was writing the book, and she said, she said I'm going to do a little experiment. And she went out and asked 10 people how they were. And 10 out of the 10 people <laughs> responded with busy or one of its derivatives. Busy, crazy busy. Oh, you know, it's so busy. And she said, you know, we've really gotten so addicted to being busy that we don't even know how to describe ourselves any other way. And that led me to see something that I'd done in my life for a long time, which was to hide out behind busy. Mm. Because if I could just be busy, I don't have to really figure out why I'm not eating healthy to fuel my body, Mm -hmm. why I'm you know, eating, uh, eating my feelings <laughs> as opposed to really feeling them so I can get down to the root of it and make choices that are better, that are better to serve me or to really figure out what's not working out in my relationship or why I'm scared to leave a really unsatisfying job. Uh, you know, when I can just hide behind busy, I don't have to dig down and really figure out what I'm feeling and let those feelings be a guide for what the next move in my life should be. Oh, I really like that. Cause you're right. We are so addicted to busyness and we put our worth on top of it. So it's, it's this convoluted thing, but we do that to hide out from, Oh, well, see, I'm too busy. Like if I didn't have all the stuff, then I could really have the job that I wanted. If I didn't have all this busyness, then I could be more connected with my kids right? There's, we have all these different, if I, if I wasn't so busy, I could actually eat well. If I wasn't so busy, I could exercise and move my body. And they become our roadblocks to us creating our lives, aren't they? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's exactly right. And so when I, you know, when, when you write about this in a book, then you have to watch out because when, then your kids will say things like, mom, can you come do this with me? And my first reaction is like, I'm too big. (laughs) Darn. Okay, what's my real answer here? <laughs> I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know what? Yeah, I'm kind of hiding out here on the computer, afraid to not do something because I'm afraid I miss out on something. And I'm just going to take a deep breath because that's reacting versus responding. And what I really want is connect some time connecting with you. So, yeah, it's an interesting experiment to take busy out of your vocabulary and notice what happens when you do that. Ooh, take busy out of your category. So I want to go to the famous to-do list. Got it. (laughs) You talk about this in your book and, you know, a lot of women thrive on to-do lists and you talk about what to do with the to-do list and what not to do. Can you share that? Yeah. So I I love to-do lists. It's not that I'm, you know, uh, that I'm opposed in any way, shape or form to to to-do lists. I just observed um, for a long time in my coaching business as I was coaching everyone from stay-at-home moms to top surgeons to executives, lawyers, you name it, that for a lot of women, um, to-do lists were a really a preferred form of self-abuse, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I saw to-do lists being 
what I'll say, misused in two common ways. One was um, the person who I kind of kiddingly call the, the to-do, to-do list overloader. And that person vomits up every single thing that they need to do in order to be a worthwhile you know, human being, citizen, mother, aunt, wife, employee, boss, you name it, onto this sheet of paper called a to-do list, but it really looks more like a doctoral dissertation (laughs) than a to-do list. And then at the end of every day, uses that diatribe, if you will, as black and white proof that they're inadequate and are never going to get everything done. Mm. At the other end of the spectrum, I often see people who who feel so kind of overwhelmed and overloaded by to-do lists that they are what I call the to-do list freestyler. <laughs> and they're the people who say, well, I'm going to keep it in my head. I just, it gets, I want to try to write it all down. I, I don't know. So I just, I just keep it up in my head, which is okay <laughs> if our brains didn't work in the words of uh, one of both of our favorite authors and former guest of your show, Martha Beck, mm-hmm. wasn't as unreliable as a two-bit whore when it came to remembering um, particularly lists of items uh, that are anything longer than one or two because your brain, that short-term memory, can hold on to things until something else draws its attention. So it's the reason we go to the grocery store with a list of, you know, three things to bring home. We get inside the grocery store, we see 10 green beans for for a dollar, <laughs> and that distracts us. And so we come out with two carts full of food and not one of the three items that we went in to get in the first place because that short-term memory is not a good space to keep track of lists. And so I like to merge those extremes into a to-do list that is for today. Um, A lot of times when people are the to-do list overloaders, they've got things that are big projects, things that they're not going to even begin work on for weeks in reality, but they just don't want to forget it. So I always say, you know, put stuff on your calendar on future dates that you want to circle back around to and you want to get going at a specific date with a specific action item or put it in a folder so you can begin to break it down. But for to-do lists really should be for today. And I like to have clients work on them, um, put everything they can on their calendar in time-specific because back to um, something like exercise, I find that when I and most of my clients put something like that in a t- on their calendar at a specific time, they're more likely to do it than when they're just sort of putting it out there and hoping that they'll find time to squeeze it in. Mm-hmm. So it, I take... Yep, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's about making that plan versus reacting, right? You're making right, a plan, right. you're committing to it. Right. And so you're, when you take your to-do list and you do that, the, the diatribe or the dissertation is fine when you're just using it as a brain dump to get everything out of your head so you're not trying to hold on to it. And then you take that brain dump list and you put as many things as you can, time-specific, on your calendar for the day. But I like to book no more than half of my available time in a day with time-specific tasks or goals or ideas. So that goes back to what you talked about you've learned is a really effective technique for you, which is leaving some space around things. Mm-hmm. Because that, A, allows for real life to happen, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kids get sick, new emails come in, uh, cell phones stop working. I mean, you name it. Those are just things that happened to me in the last 24 hours, right? <laughs> um, and, so, and you also leave space to just sit out in the sunshine and drink a cup of coffee for a little while as well, which is another great space where your brain can innovate. Um, 
And so I like to leave, you know, schedule less than half the available time in the day with time-specific things, and then no more than three to five other items on my to-do list for the day. And then the other thing I do with to-do lists is I try to separate out those little tasks. I call them two-minute tasks, the thing you can get done in two minutes or less, put them on their own separate list. I try to have no more than five or six of those on the list. And then I set my good old kitchen timer for 10 minutes and I start my day out getting rid of those little things that fly around, you know, writing the check for the the field trip for the kid or um, taking the things that are at the top of the stairs and putting them away in the various room downstairs. Or those are the kinds of things that end up on my two-minute list. I find when I get those out of the way, they don't buzz around and distract me or they don't pile up into their own big project that I need to deal with later. So that's another technique when it comes to to-do lists. It really has helped clear some space because ultimately when I use my to-do list to kind of help me stay in my lane, it helps me get connected to my bigger picture of why I'm doing things and what I want to do and and instead of just, again, going through the motions like I'm an ant doing my job but with no real connection to anything bigger than me. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And the thing I th- keep thinking about with this time, embracing time, it goes back to I think what Kristen Neff, Neff, Neff has said on my show about compassionate people have boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And the time thing is that, you know, yes, there's tons of different choices in the world, but we, what are the choices that are aligned with our values, with our priorities, right? And to measure yeah. that, like, and, and we all have to, and I hate the word balance because I think everybody thinks it's this, you know, they're striving for this like equilibrium <laughs> that may happen on occasion, but usually it's, you know, I always talk about it's like a bunch of balls in the air and you're just trying to make sure they don't crack. But what are in line with your values? So if your family is important to you and your child gets sick and you and you have this work thing or you have a radio interview, how do you make that work within those situations? Obviously, if you were in the ER, we would have canceled this, right? <laughs> and But if she's sick and your child's, you know, sleeping in the bed, you can still do the interview. And, and I think that is it. Instead of thinking that we have to live in this perfect world where oh, I just need to have a better thought. It's about having the boundaries along with what are our priorities. That's what it sounds like to me. Oh, it's huge. Boundaries are so huge. And I virtually had none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when oh, I yeah. In, when I was in the, the stage of life, which I described earlier. And, and people would have said, oh, yes, you did, Jill. You always stated your opinion and said what you thought. But I didn't really understand boundaries. And one of the most important things I learned how to do when it came time to switching my whole mindset and the way I embrace time versus, you know, being um, abused by it uh, was learning to say no. And it's one of the things that I spend a lot of time with different clients is teaching people um, how to say no and understanding, you know, it's it's a life coachy thing to say, but I really believe it's true that saying learning to say no clearly um in, in creating the boundaries about around your time and your decisions makes room for a lot more yeses in your life. It really does. Say more about that. So a lot of times when um, somebody would ask me to do something, without communicating to them, I just immediately was kind of resentful. Like, Don't they know how busy and how much <laughs> I have to do? And I would do one of two things. So I would either, with that... Um, just, you know, 
them asking me, there was this automatic resentment kind of weighing down our communication. And I would either say yes, just because I didn't want to have to pass with it or it was just easier to say yes or I didn't want to be mad at me or any of the old excuses and stories and lies I used to tell myself. Or I would say no, but I would spend so much time explaining either why I was justified in saying no or why they really shouldn't have asked me in the first place because I'm such a busy, crazy person and I'm doing all this important, worthwhile stuff. Because, by the way, since I'm busy, that means I'm worthy. That both of us felt like we needed to take a shower when I was done <laughs> saying mm-hmm. no. And so what I've realized, what I realized eventually is that when I can sit in a place of appreciation, when somebody asks me to do something, usually they don't ask me to do something because I'm an idiot or because they think I'm an idiot. They ask me because they see that I have something of value or my gifts and talents or something that they want to share. So when I pause and I usually, I ask myself three questions. Do I have the available time to do this? Does this line up with my values and um, my vision for myself for the for the future? And does and um, is this something I want to do? <laughs> those are three questions. And if the answer to any of those questions is no, I give myself permission to say no. But for sure. If the answer to two of those questions is no, do I want to do it? Do I have the available time? Does it line up with my vision and values? If the answer to any two of those, it, it, I know from previous experience that the answer needs to be no, or I'm not going to serve myself or them, whoever's doing the asking very well at all. And then when I say no, I always start with an acknowledgement of appreciation for asking me. And then a very short, clear no um, I'm not able to do that. I really appreciate you thinking of me. I know sometimes these positions can be hard to fill, and I am not going to be able to help you out at this time. I wish you the best of luck in finding the right person. And you're leaving that person with dignity. Yeah. And and, and I, I learned that script, so to speak, from when I was at a parent leadership position, and I asked somebody, was asking people to do things, and I was getting some okays and yeses, or I was getting people just completely ignoring my request, and I was getting some yeses, yeah, I'm happy to do it kind of thing. And that response, that one person who I'd known for a long time gave me that response, such a clear, empowering way to communicate, to allow, to respect both of us. Nobody needs to compete over who's more important, who's busier, who's doing more or less in the world. But it acknowledged what I was looking for and then freed me up to go find the next person who might be the right person for the job, even though I'd ask somebody else. I love that. Yeah. We don't need to get into the busier Olympics, right? Who's busier and who's, (laughs) (laughs) we don't need to compare. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. That's great. You are more than welcome to. So I want to talk about this taking action piece, because when you take action, it's like what you're talking about. A lot of times we will take action from that place of resentment and we show up and we don't do our best work. So where is it important to be rooted in before you go and take action? I think it goes back to what you said earlier, um, and that's in, in, in connecting to your why. I like to think of it as what am I anchoring myself in? Because <laughs> if I'm anchored to a why that connects to my deeper values, that connects to love, that connects to you know the way I want to show up in the world, and not to more tenuous things like approval or 
um, status or fear-based, I'm going to miss out on if I don't. Mm -hmm. I found those to be really weak anchor points that tend to break off as soon as, you know, the sea starts getting rocky when life happens. And then I end up either drifting or moving or drowning or ending up way off course. So when I really um, take just a second to pause and say, okay, what am I anchoring this in? It really helps me um, decide what steps are going to be the most efficient and effective. It helps me get clear boundaries about saying no (laughs) when it comes to my time. And it helps me be more open and authentic, which is where I tend to find a lot of the onus of the effort gets taken off my shoulders and I get to collaborate with other people who say, oh, you know, thanks for being candid about that. I have that shared interest as well. Maybe we can unify forces here and you're not, you don't have to sort of carry the load yourself, Mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Now, I want to go into this connecting to love, right? What does that mean? That means, when I say connecting to love, I mean, I, we, uh, Fabek of Adamache, who was your guest recently, said something so brilliant, which is that, you know, fear promises certainty. Mm-hmm. Fear says, if you do this, then you're going to get this. And love is more uncertain, but I look at it as love is where the possibility is. When I trust that this little old um, picture that my fear brain is trying to conjure is is very limiting. And when I trust and have a little bit of faith that when I look inside other people for um, the energy of love, if you will, and when I am more and I'm am making decisions based on, to use that Marianne Williamson line, what would love do in this case, I just find that I tend to make very few mistakes from that space. And everything... I, I, I learn more, I grow more, and I find there's a lot more richness in whatever it is I'm choosing to engage in. So I totally get this, but I'm I'm concerned about the listener out there. And when, so say we'll do a, um, there's a volunteer position at the school, right, that our kids are involved in. And um, when we when we're talking about love, is it that when we look at the situation and we know what's on our plate, Right. And what are on our priorities? And maybe there's a big work project coming up or maybe you've already, you know, committed yourself to other areas. Right. Mm-hmm. And they say, we need somebody for help for this. Can you do this? It's not that you have to love that, but isn't it about loving yourself? Like, I'm going to love that's, myself. That's all. And when I ask myself the question, what would love do here? <sighs> love says that by saying yes, just because I'm afraid somebody else is going to be mad at me or love says instead of just um, doing it because I've always done it, I kind of like that martyr space, and then I have something to complain about. <laughs> that doesn't feel like it's connected to love. When I connect to how can I love myself and love the other people involved here, including my school community and my kids, wow, all of a sudden it becomes clear, I'm not really going to be doing anybody any favors to jump in here and do this. Mm-hmm. Now, I can, again, acknowledge with love that feeling those positions can be tough, and I can share ideas, and I can share support, and I can also say, you know, the world won't end if, we, <laughs> if I can't plug into that. But yeah, it's, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, the, it's the, the recognizing that 
when you plug in to that recognizing that your um, that you, your needs <laughs> and taking care of yourself really matters, that's where you can recharge your battery mm-hmm. so that you get out of that constant frenzied, drained, overwhelmed state, and you get into the space where you can get ideas. And again, have that growth mindset, have the idea where you can take obstacles and move through them and beyond them just instead of feeling like the world is conspiring against you to leave you buried in a pile of tasks and expectations Mm -hmm. and duty. Well, you know, it's interesting because so recently I was called a jury duty. So this is, you know, I think a great example. And, you know, of course, like jury duty, everybody's like, oh, right. Who has time for this? I don't want to do this. And I remember getting called and part of me was hoping like, maybe I'll be able to call in and I won't be needed. And I had to do a lot of work on this because I could, I could easily say, I don't have time for this. I'm self-employed. It's going to cost me money. But when I go back to my values is that I really believe in the court system. Not that I think it's efficient or it's the best way or any of that stuff, but I, I'm thankful that I live in a country that has a jury system right? And that has this. And so that's something I believe in. And so for me, it goes back to, well, if I believe in this, but I'm not willing to participate in it, then I'm out in line with my own integrity. Yeah, right? that's exactly right. And so for me to go, it's not like I love to be in jury, but I did kind of had to open my mindset. And it was a process over the course of the day. Because of course, when I first got there, I'm like, how can I get out? How can I get out? But over the course of the day, and then once I finally did get picked, you know, and I sat there and I was like, okay, I'm here. And it was fascinating. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about me. It was it was an incredibly a gross experience. But because I, I went in with that growth mindset, with still that I don't have enough time for this, right? Sure. But because it was aligned with my values, I made it better and said, okay, I am here, you know, and this is some this is a process I believe in, and I believe in, you know, being of service in this manner. So this is what I'm going to do. It is not something I would choose to do on a frequent basis. So, right. but it's a reality of life. And that's what you're, I'm, I'm trying to get, bring in like a real world example, right? That this is yeah. something that's going to affect most of us out here. That's exactly, that's a great. And that's again, another example of when I talk about anchoring this in your values. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another way too, you know, there are things in life that, that we wouldn't necessarily choose, you know, um, having, uh, or we don't think we would choose it. So we say to ourselves, oh, I have to do that. I have to do this. I have to take care of my sick mom. I've got to, I have to, you know, organize my kids' summer um, plans for this year. And the reality, the only thing we have to do every day is breathe. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to do jury duty. And people say, oh, wait a second, Jill, that's full. I have to go to work or, you know, I won't be able to pay my mortgage and I'll lose my house or I have to take care of my mom or, you know, she'll end up in state care or um, whatever the, the story is. Um, and, the re- and again, it's true that you are choosing to do those things because the consequence of not doing them stink, mm-hmm. but it's still a choice. And it's not just semantics here. It's really recognizing that that's what makes us, that differentiates us from animals who can only think about survival to beings who can thrive. And we thrive because we have the ability to choose. And when we take ownership for what we choose and when we line those choices up with our values, that tends to be a much stronger foundation for deciding what to do with your time and how to take action that's inspired and that leaves you feeling 
energized and like you've accomplished something at the end of the day instead of drained and depleted and, and constantly like you're not getting anything done. I, I think that's great because again, it's, it's not saying that, oh, we're going to disregard all these things that we need to do that are practical, but when you realize it's a choice. So I think that right there, what you said was a great takeaway. Do you have another takeaway for the listeners? I think another big takeaway is just to when begin to recognize in yourself when you're in that frenzied um, kind of chicken with your head cut off mode to practice taking one deep breath and saying, I notice I'm having the not enough time thought again. I notice I'm telling myself the not enough time story. Notice, and then replace it with something that's going to serve you better. There is enough time. And notice how much more capable you are of taking action and deciding what to do in that state. Jill, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight, and it was just always terrific to be with you, and your listeners are Awesome. So it was really fun to be able to be part of this. They are awesome. And I think this is going to be great for them in their lives. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks for listening to that interview with Jill Farmer today. And I'm trying something new. I'm actually going to be talking at the end of my interviews um, to close out the show and to give you a little feedback about what I'm thinking and so on. So let me know what you think of this because this is your show and love to hear what you have to say and what values you get from it, if any. So, you know, the time management thing, it's not so much about time management, but I love how Jill talked about that we thrive because we have the ability to choose. So I really invite you to think about that when you're going about and structuring your day. And and another important thing to talk about or to think about is, Jill and I talked about this after the interview, is when clients will come to her and say, but your book says this way, but this is the way it works for me. You know, and that's the most important thing in the work that I do is about what works for you. What are the systems that work for you? No need. If you have a system that works for you, no need to chuck that out and throw it out and start all over. What can you integrate? And then what nuggets can you take, whether it's from the show or from something you read or how a friend does it, right? And how can you refine your own system to to improve the quality of your life? Because that's really what it's about. Um and I really like the idea when we were talking about the to-do list and what Jill had mentioned earlier about how people can use that to-do list to beat themselves up or to say, see, you know, you can never get anything done. You're really not disciplined. And we can really get into that self-beating, right? And I know you guys know this because you listen to the show. It's not about beating ourselves. So we can have this tool that can be helpful. And we hear it from all the time management gurus out there like, right, this is the tool that you need. But if it's rooted or as Jill's word is anchored in a place of fear or in a place of not good enough, it actually will become a weapon towards you. So really kind of pay attention to that. Create that insight. Where is this being driven from? Right? What is the best use for you? And knowing that and knowing your systems. And I've had to create my system on what works for me. Right? And that's really what I think is important because I'm really, as you know, not a big fan of blueprints, right? I don't like to be told what to do. I have a strong inner rebel. Um, but I like to, I love to learn. I love to learn how people do things. That's why I have this show, right? What are the things that they do? What is that like aha moment? Or what is that takeaway that I can do and implement and incorporate into my life? And those are the things that I really invite you as the listener. What can you take away? 
what can you do? And not from a place of, oh, shame, right? I don't do it that way. Or, oh my gosh, I am that person, right? I am that person that always is telling my kids I'm too busy. And then I kind of sneak off and go on Facebook and I'm not connecting. What is it that you really need, right? We all do that. None of us are perfect. None of us are at all perfect. And we all have flaws. And even though we understand this work intellectually, as Jill said, is that we can struggle to implement it, right? So give yourself that break and just see how you can practice incorporating it into your life. I love the idea about values and anchoring yourself in your values. That's one of the things that I work on with my clients, right? What are the values? And that that jury duty thing was a fascinating experience because I can be in that place. What I tell my clients is the compassionate observer, right? Where we can really take a look at what is going on instead of that fearful place. And when I first walked into the jury room, I walked in thinking, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. I have clients. I have a busy week. I'm too busy of a person. But that really conflicted with my inner sense of, I believe in our court system. I believe in public service, right? And, and, I, and that was causing a lot of inner turmoil. And once I just let go and just accepted, and it took me a few hours, it didn't happen overnight, right? Or in a moment, but it, I kept working on this, working on this, like, that's a really strong value. That is my value. I am not saying that needs to be yours. That is my value that helps guide me. And so I was fortunate. It did work out. I was on a short case. So that worked out. It, in the flow of my life, it was way better to happen in February than in the summer due to my, my current um, obligations and the way I choose to spend my time. So that part worked out too. And in my belief of, I, I believe in serving and I believe in our jury duty or our jury system. So when you think about that, it's not about, I'm only going to do things that are luxurious, things that really excite me, because we all have stuff on our list that, you know, can be an inconvenience, right? And so, but it's about the choices. And so once I made that choice and said, this is what I'm accepting, and this is in line with what I believe for me, I was able to go about the process right? And it didn't mean that, you know, I was rearranging my calendar with my clients and they were very accommodating, thankfully, and I was able to make it work and make it work within my family structure, right? So it did work out. So it wasn't that it was this clean, easy, no hassle situation, right? And I think that's another important thing that I, before I want to go and leave you with is that in this world of self-help, right? I often think about you know, you think you read a book or you listen to an interview, and you're like, okay, that's it. That's that golden ticket that's going to take me off into this promised land. It's always about practicing, you know, practice, 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 implement, learn, retweet, practice, practice, practice. And this idea that we will master it and then it won't be a problem. Well, there'll be a new growth opportunity somewhere else. I like to talk to my clients a lot about when they're, especially when they're learning about weight loss, right? And doing it from this way of connecting with their body versus a diet and somebody dictating to us. I talk a lot about when we are first learning how to drive a car, I still have vivid memories of making that right hand turn, right? Just in a, uh, an industrial parkway on the weekend and making that right hand turn and feeling like, oh my gosh, this five miles an hour is so fast. And how often do I make right hand turns now? And I'm thinking about so many other things about what's to cook for dinner, what is the schedule, what's on my to-do list, what's the most efficient way, right? Who is my guest coming up? So when you learn these new things, it doesn't mean 
that we become, we live in the promised land and there aren't any problems because while that may have been a stressful thing when we were 15 years old learning how to drive, there have been other things that have created more learning, more growth, right? And we can go unconscious to a degree. I'm not suggesting it, but we tend to, right? We've kind of mastered it. So we go along and we have those awakenings when somebody decides to cut right in front of us or something. But so I really invite you to think about how you can practice this without beating yourself up, sit in that growth mindset of a mind, like Carol Dweck has spoken to us about, right? Really opening up that brain and asking yourself, okay, what can I learn from this? Wow, I just I just noticed that all week I've been saying I'm too busy. I'm too busy. There's not enough time. There's not enough time. How do I feel? Right? Is this how I want to feel? Right? And go and test it out. Do an experiment like Jill had talked about one of the or some of the people will do. They'll go test it out because they want to prove her wrong. And then they come back and they say, oh, well, this does work strangely. And it, it's counterintuitive, but go and test it out. I really invite you to do that. So thank you so much for listening today. And please let me know what you think about me closing out the segment one-on-one like this. And um, I look forward to hearing from you. You can always email me at hello at howshereallydoesit.com. Hello at howshereallydoesit.com. I read every bit of information and I am learning or looking for a new system to so I can do my email management system better. And today's guest was Jill Farmer and I will have links to her as well as the other interviews that we talked about on her interview page and also to her book. And her book is There's Not Enough Time and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves. It's a nice, simple read for you to go through and she has some great techniques about what you can do, right? And again, if you can look at it instead of a blueprint or a recipe, these are nuggets of information. So thanks for listening to How She Really Does It and we'll be talking next week. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming. She is drifting, never been so wild.